0: Hi, I'm Judith Zoe. welcome to The Digital Period. The Digital Period is a public philosophy project where I, Judith, examine our relationship with technology by taking a closer look at period apps. I'm a philosopher and a lawyer based in the Netherlands and I have been working on digital policy for almost 10 years. In the previous episode, we discussed the societal aspects of period apps. We discussed why it is important to understand the risks that are involved when sharing your menstruation data with others. Anastasia Siapka laid down five main risks that we need to take into account. Intimate data can be used for unwanted surveillance practices. Data can be used to quantify or commodify our bodies... It can go hand-in-hand with a violation of the principle of maleficence in medicine, and lastly, the design of period apps sometimes reinforces harmful stereotypes. While these are definitely reasons to worry, we should not become complacent. On the contrary, Anastasia also said this. We can take a more balanced approach
1: and accept that a technological tool can be at the same time empowering and disempowering, depending on how it is used and how it is configured.
0: In this episode, we're going to look at exactly that. We will examine how we can make sure paired apps are configured in a way that they align with values we find important. With Iris Meis from the University of Utrecht, I discuss how values can be translated into technology. We talk about helpful tools for developers and what kind of skills are necessary to successfully work on value-based design. And I will talk to Julia Kramer, a researcher from the Erasmus University in Rotterdam. With Julia, I will discuss how people that use apps, including period apps, can increase their understanding of how these apps use our data and track us. So now I would like you to meet Iris, who acts as the Lead Operations and Lead Data Ethics at the Data School of the University of Utrecht.
2: (music)
3: so for me one of the reasons to do this project was to find like a concrete case study that allows me to talk about values and technology and how they interact translating democratic values into technology i think is part of your core business could you maybe explain what are democratic values
1: is this huge list or world you could say of things you could find important so some values that are often mentioned are transparency you know equality maybe honesty or justice i could go on and on and on and on basically these are the values underlying our society so they're also underlying law fundamental rights are based on these democratic values the rule of law is based on these democratic values or public values you could call them also the principles of good governance are based on these values so you could say everything in our society are based on these values and these values are really about the question what kind of society do we want to live in in short democratic values are things we find important in shaping
3: our society how do we decide what our values are or who decides Who decides that? Because they can mean uh, different things to different people and they can Mm -hmm. also mean different things to different situations, different countries, different continents. And I think one of the nice things about law is we have this entire representative democratic system where we elect people to agree on the laws we want to have. Well, I think with values it's a lot less concrete how we agree on what our values are. Um, So yeah, how do we how do we decide what European or Dutch values are?
1: Yeah, so I guess that can be different from person to person, from team within organization to team, from organization to organization, from region to region, it can really uh, differ. I think what is very important is having this continuous conversation on values. And you mentioned the role of elected representatives. These are super important when it comes to these value conversations. So that's, that's the first thing so basically they decide what values are going to be leading the second thing or issue or step you could call it is operationalizing these values so how do you operationalize or translate these abstract and and sometimes umbrella term like values into daily practices Mm -hmm. so that's a very important process and it's it can also be a very daunting or intransparent process and at data school we have developed a a couple of methods on how to operationalize values basically so the first one which is i think the most like low threshold one is dida the data ethics decision aid so it's basically a deliberation tool it's this big poster, it looks like this old traditional Dutch game of ganzeboards, <laughs> like this spiral and you start at the the right hand corner which says start in really big red letters and you kind of work down this spiral to until you get to the middle, which is the end, the conclusion. You know, and sometimes people joke when we use this method like Oh, when i do something wrong i have to go back to start because that's like this specific thing in the dutch game but it is really like that because when you cannot answer it's it's for technology projects so it, it can be used for an algorithm or a dashboard or or the use of drones whatever type of of application of technology there is and when you cannot answer an ethical question on the the poster or when you cannot sufficiently answer the question yeah indeed you have to go back to start and you have to rethink you know the the application of this technology and do you as an organization really want to adopt this technology or maybe does it go against your organizational values and you should redesign this project or maybe even terminate this project so But the the starting point is having a conversation about values together with a diverse team within the organization, people with different backgrounds in the broadest sense of of the term um, and talking about, okay, what values do you deem important in your job and what does it mean to you? And does this specific application of technology represent these
3: values? Or maybe it breaches these values and then you have a big problem, of course. I really love the data. I also love the design of the poster. It's really pretty. I will share it where this comes out. If you use this data tool at an organization, like where would they need to start? For instance, I've also been talking to some developers of peer tracking apps. And let's say one of them would like to use this tool. Where would they need to start?
1: The phase in which you can best use these types of tools, there are many different deliberation methods when it comes to technology and values, um, is either in the ideation phase, so when there's an idea, or when it's a little bit further on, but preferably before something is actually deployed, because the most important thing is that you have enough space to change the design when it is necessary you have to be able to adapt the design when one of the outcomes could be that you know that the original design will breach certain values that's of course an unwanted situation so there has to be space to adapt those designs yeah when you use such a tool like uh, like data or any other method ethical method you will get some action points or like Mm -hmm. follow-up points coming out of that uh, which can be very practical like um, limit access to the data set to certain groups within the organization or anonymize the data or you know they could be very technical Um, they could also be a little more broad like uh, we have to put in place accountability mechanisms, mechanisms for complaints or redress. Um, we have to include certain uh, population groups. They could be anything. Mm-hmm. So when you get these types of recommendations, of course, you need to follow them up. Um, so I guess, yeah, that's that's the
3: most mm-hmm. important follow up step. I think one of the things that's in my head because I met you a while ago where we both were giving talks to students. And when you were talking to me, to the students, it was very obvious to me that you're really good at talking to people and that you're also really good at listening to people and having conversations. And I think it also a really essential part for having these conversations about values uh, with organizations. These tools are really handy and a really good start. And I think the willingness to have these conversations is also a really great start. But I also think that it requires a certain skill or a kind of a social skill or i don't i don't know the best how to describe it or maybe an attitude towards how you look at others within an organization um that's important i don't really have a question i'm basically yeah, saying i that understand I see. what you're saying yeah, yeah.
1: and yeah. and it 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 makes me think of We're in a research consortium, European Research Consortium, trying to get this um, funding for setting up uh, an educational program for digital ethicists. This is like a new term, a new, new function or role or job title, the digital ethicist. And it's supposed to be a person who knows about technology, who knows about public values and uh, who can lead the way, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not enough education on the topic yet. Uh, and we did a, a small like digital needs analysis. Um, so I interviewed five people who self-identified as digital ethicists. Mm-hmm from different different organizations so industry government NGO um, and I asked them okay what what skills does a digital ethicist need and what was very surprising well surprising and and unsurprising at the same time was that a lot of them uh, told me that you need some someone called it teach teacher skills Like she had been a teacher before she became a digital ethicist and she said that that was very helpful because as digital ethicist you're also kind of a pioneer that needs to educate and inspire others within and your own organization and also outside of your own organization so these teacher skills or maybe leadership skills you could call them were deemed very important.
0: Iris just explains something that's very hard in very clear terms. She makes it sound easy because she is excellent in what she does. I think that still too often organizations and corporations only start thinking about what values are important to them after problems occur or when they are trying to figure out what marketing story they want to convey. We often look at technology as if it comes from outside of us. But in reality, we can actually make sure that the stuff we make is good. And if it's not, we should try harder, start over, or maybe find something else we should work on. Understanding the importance of values and reflection when developing anything is extremely important. However, if we want to make better products and services, including better period apps, we need to explicitly and continuously think about how we translate values such as privacy, control and autonomy, into all of the components of an app. It should impact its design, the cybersecurity measures, the language, the colors, everything. I also want to face the reality of the present, where many, including myself, use period apps right now. I wanted to increase my own understanding of how period apps use our data and track us. And by chance, or one could say, Because of my never-ending urge to talk about period apps wherever I am, I met Julia. Julia is researching the privacy policies of apps in app stores. Although her research does not focus specifically on period apps, but apps in general, she had collected a lot of data also on period apps from the app stores. Julia can tell us way more about what we can do now to improve our control over how our data is used. Yeah, I think mm.
2: we, we, um, we met at a, at a table, we had lunch, and I was talking with somebody else, and you just like chipped into the conversation. Oh, yeah, I was e-
0: eavesdropping. <laughs> yeah. I was eavesdropping, and I was like, oh, I think she might research something that's relevant <laughs> for me. And then and I inserted then, yeah. myself. And then <laughs> we had a really interesting conversation. Yeah. So I'm really
2: happy that we were <laughs> accidentally at the same lunch table. so... Yeah,
0: me too. Me too. Could you maybe introduce yourself?
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So my name is Julia. I'm currently living here in the Netherlands, where I'm doing my PhD at the Erasmus um, School of Law um, in Rotterdam. And my PhD is in the area of data protection law and empirical legal studies, and I'm currently exploring whether and how app stores um, impact um, and implement privacy protection standards. Um, And for that reason, um, I'm analyzing at the moment policies of app stores um, and their requirements. And I complement this analysis with empirical data, which is why I collected a lot of data about uh, Android apps and iOS apps.
0: So to increase our understanding of how apps work on our phones, we need to get a grasp of a couple of concepts. First of all, we usually download apps from an app store. App stores play a significant role in how apps are designed. They also give us a lot of information about the apps that we want to use. Secondly, most apps including period trackers also track you. What are trackers and what do they do? Thirdly, we will go into permissions. Things that you probably implicitly gave permission to sort of without really knowing you did. So let's start with app stores.
2: What are they? We have currently two dominant app stores, which is the Apple App Store for Mm -hmm. iOS apps and um, the Google Play Store for Android apps. So also, uh, when you download an app, um, like the information that is provided by these app stores differs as well as the entry requirements for apps, for for example. So in in general, um, I think the difference is that they're just for two different operating systems. So you have Android and you have um, iOS. Mm And developers cannot use the same app for both app stores. So they have to develop a completely new app um, Mm. in order to fit for the different operating systems, which is why um, you have uh, different apps present in the uh, Android store than than in the Apple store. Mm. And also, of course, the different information that is provided is varying. So you have... Um, For example, the address of the developer you only see in the Google Play Store and not in the Apple App Store. So they have different design choices here.
0: And of course, am I right, the Google Play Store is owned by Google? Yes. And the iOS Store is owned by Apple? Exactly, exactly.
2: The app stores are in a really influential position because they're kind of combining or matching users with, the, with apps mm-hmm. and they are so to speak gatekeepers because with their entry requirements they can yeah, decide who is able to have an app in the app store and, and who, who is not. Mm-hmm. Trackers are basically just some pieces of software and their task is to collect a lot of data about you. So for example, data about how you use an app, um, about the user or about the smartphone you're using. Um, And there are also trackers for all kinds of um, services. So um, not all trackers are necessarily bad. So you have, for example, trackers that um, are there to report if an app is crashing, which is of course really interesting information Mm -hmm. for a developer. You have trackers that collect analytics So, data about um, how you use the app. So, how much time did you spend, for example, on looking at this specific content element? Or which recipe did you click on in a cooking app? Um, And you also have trackers that are for ads. They try to identify you to show you targeted advertising, and you have profiling trackers. So, you see, there are a Mm -hmm. lot of different trackers, and I think. The invasion in your privacy really is context-dependent and also tracker-dependent. Um, what are permissions? Um, yeah, permissions are basically access rights um, of an app. So they manage what an app can, um, is allowed to access and what they can do with your phone. For example, um, uh, yeah, flashlight app of course, need the permission to use your flashlight on your phone in order to, to mm-hmm. function. But of course, when well, then the flashlight app is also accessing your GPS location, yeah, that's, I think... Unnecessary. Unnecessary, maybe. exactly. <laughs> so um, these permissions you can also um, actually manage and check, usually in the settings of your phone. And uh, I think it makes sense to, to, yeah, once in a while actually have a look at which permissions yeah which permissions app apps actually accessing because of course if you're again your period tracking app is accessing your gps data um, mm-hmm. i would really wonder why and maybe not have this period app have access to your location data so yeah. i think that's something that you can actually quite well manage in your settings
0: yeah so what kind of information can a person find in the app store on an app they're interested in uh, that is relevant to make an estimation on how this app would be handling your data?
2: What is usually in an app, when you click on it, you have information, for example, about the developer. Um, the Google Play Store, for example, shows also the address of the developers. You can actually see where they are based. Uh, if there's a privacy policy, you can also get a link to the privacy policy. And there's a recent tool that you actually also see now, the so-called privacy labels, Um, So you see some more detailed information already on the page of the app, um, what the app is collecting um, or what it's allegedly collecting. Because Mm -hmm. the developers do um, these disclosures by themselves and they're not verified. So Mm. um, I think that's also something to keep in mind. (laughs) (laughs) The label of Apple App Store, they say data used to track you when it's transferred to a third party. But when Apple's period tracking app is collecting data of you, then it's not labeled as tracking under Apple's terms because it's just transferred to its own walled garden, its own ecosystem. You see that you should definitely not trust um, these labels when you look at Apple's own period tracking app, for example. Yeah,
0: because Apple, of course, is a huge company. Yeah. So when they say they don't share data with third parties, that doesn't mean that they don't share data.
2: Exactly. So, um, well, they don't share it with third parties, allegedly, Mm -hmm. but they don't even have to share it anymore with third parties because they have so much data about you that they don't need it to create a profile of Uh. you. And so when they say, um, and also on the app page of this Apple period tracking app, it says it's not tracking, which means not sharing data with third parties, Mm -hmm. but it's still can share this within with the it. company, exactly. within with different it. departments. exactly, yeah. And I think that's yeah quite dangerous also because I think Apple is now yeah running this PR campaign that they're really portraying them as a privacy warrior or defender, which I would always look at with some careful um, eyes. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so if you're a user and you go to an app store and you care about privacy and you want to find out the status of the privacy of the Mm -hmm. app that you're interested in, what would you suggest that a person would look for?
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's a a good question because, of course, you have some red flags. Mm -hmm. If there's not even a link to a privacy policy, um, I would be a bit careful. Or if the developer, for example, is not based um, in the EU. But also it gets a bit more tricky because... There has been, in the past, some allegations by the U.S. regulator, by the FTC, against Flow, mm-hmm. which is yeah. Uh, yeah a really popular app. And uh, they allegedly did not disclose that they were like sharing data with Facebook, for example, like sensitive data of their users. And I think that is a really telling example, because even if the app is frequently downloaded... If it states even their privacy policy that they don't share data, it can still be the case that they do. So that's why I would always suggest to actually check the trackers that are yeah. embedded in an app to be sure. And there are luckily some tools that have been developed um, that help you to identify that.
0: So as a user, you can start an app store. When you're in app store, you can see if there is a privacy policy link, you can look at the privacy labels and see what they mm-hmm. communicate. And if you're in the Android or the Play, Google Play Store, you can also check out the address to have some idea of uh, what kind of compliance measures uh, an, an app needs to comply to. Yeah. But then yeah. if that's not enough, <laughs> if you're still curious, you can also check out for yourself exactly what kind of trackers are used in the app that you're interested in. Yeah, that's super cool. I th- you, said, you told me this when we met, and I was like, oh, great, there is a way that we can find out what trackers are used in these apps. That's amazing news. Um, can you
2: maybe first tell us a little bit more about the
0: tools and what kind of tools they are? Of course, you
2: have different apps. So there is a tool, for example, for the Play Store, which is focusing on Android apps, and there are tools for the Apple App Store that focus on iOS apps. And there is a really amazing project, in my opinion, that is called the Exodus Privacy Project. And what they do is that they analyze the code of apps and actually identify which trackers are embedded. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's already goes a step further than just looking at the privacy policy, which I often not checked or verified, and you actually really see what trackers app is using. A similar tool you have for... Um, iOS apps, which is the so-called tracker control, which is also a page that you can use. And there you also see the embedded trackers. And I think they give you a really good indication of yeah, how many trackers an app is actually using. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I would yeah recommend that um, to do all the time if you're downloading apps that potentially collect sensitive information of you. Uh, like information about your period, so um, and it's actually quite easy. Like um, also Exodus for Play Store, they have even an app where you can check and also website, and it's yeah it really takes like twenty seconds, and um, then you can just compare maybe two apps that were attractive to you, which one has less trackers embedded or which which types of trackers, and then you can make a decision. So um, I think with the permissions, I would suggest to always check in the settings of your phone because actually mm-hmm. there I think you have these permissions listed quite well mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's quite understandable. And you can also manage them in your settings. And for example, what Apple is doing is that they have recently, they introduced this app privacy report. So um, Apple users can access on their phones exactly when an app was using which permission, uh, which I think is also quite interesting to see when, for example, your contacts data were accessed at like 3 a.m. in the morning. You're like, I wasn't even using the phone. Why is it doing it? And then and how? where can you find this? You data? can find it at the so-called app privacy report. And it's a new feature or a recently introduced feature by Apple. And I think that's quite nice just to see yeah, which permissions yeah. have access. So I would also recommend everyone to once in a while check these reports to understand yeah which permissions have been accessed, especially when it comes to location data or your camera. Okay, so and for the trackers, so for the permissions, it's best to check your own phone? I would say so, yeah. I think there it's already quite nicely put. Yeah. And I think for the trackers, I would really just like firstly, how many trackers are embedded in this app? And of course, if there are 20 trackers, I would... Definitely not download it. And also just check what these trackers are doing. Because again, there are different trackers for different yeah, sorts of activities. Mm-hmm. And um, if, it's, yeah, it's, if it's a location tracker, yeah, I would again question why, why do they need this information. Yeah.
3: I hope Julia's tips will help you explore what
0: is happening on your phone. It can help you make a more informed decision, although it might not explain everything. I found that my newspaper app, of all apps, used the most trackers. If you have an iPhone, I highly recommend you to turn on the privacy report. If you have an Android phone, you can take a look at your privacy dashboard. Julia has extracted all available data on period apps from the iOS and Google Play Store. She put this data in two Excel sheets. She also compared this data to the available data of other apps that fall within the fitness and wellness category. You can find these overviews on my website, thedigitalperiod.com. After my conversation with Julia, I looked at the period apps I have on my phone. I tried to understand what trackers and permissions are used by these apps. I found it incredibly hard to make sense out of it. What I would like to know is whether these period apps share data with companies such as Meta, formerly known as Facebook. If you're listening to this episode and would be able to dive even deeper in the data flows of period apps, please get in touch. I think it is important as someone who tracks their period on their phone that I become more aware of the technology I use. However, trying to understand trackers has helped me understand that making sure the apps on your phone respect your privacy really should not be the responsibility of the individual. It is not possible to fully understand what is going on, and trying to understand it takes a disproportionate amount of time. Next episode, I will therefore discuss how a more collective understanding of autonomy and privacy can shift the burden away from the individual. And we'll talk about one of those values that all peer apps seem to want to include, autonomy. What does it actually mean? Thank you so much for listening. This episode was made by me, Judith Zoe. A special shout-out to everyone featured in this episode, especially Anastasia Siapka, Iris Meis, and Julia Kramer. If you want to learn more about their work or the articles mentioned in this episode, check them out on thedigitalperiod.com. The jingle was made by Christos Scholten's and me. This episode was made possible by the Alfred Landecker Fund and Humanity in Action. A special thanks to the Privacy Salon and the Conference on Privacy and Data Protection for letting me interview during the conference where I talked to Iris and where I met Julia at a lunch table.
1: Yeah, cool. Well,
0: I learned a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having
2: me.